Hey everyone, welcome back to the Mike Rosart Show, or the Wise Ball Show as we used to call it, you know, two years back when it first started. Every Wednesday I go live at 7 p.m., so here I am. A uh, couple of minutes tardy, I apologize, like 7.05, and that is because I was on a call with my property manager. We were discussing uh, something so silly and so simple. It's a challenge, by the way, when you work with you know a new property manager or you work with, in general, new people. You have to onboard them to your processes and how you think and how you work. And um, people think that you know property management or even owning property and having property management is passive income, and it's it's just not. Um, it's semi-passive at best, but it's nowhere near the level of of passivity as say collecting dividends or say, um, geez, our power almost went out on that light bulb. Um, and we are having a thunderstorm right now, so apologies if I lose power, hopefully I don't. But um, anyway, I just wanted to kind of get that out there before I started the early retirement live Q&A. Um, we may lose power, looks like there's some thundering in the distance. But we're talking about today the, the early retirement mindset, and I just wanted to share my preamble about uh, what my experience has been with you know managing property, and sometimes it's actually easier to do something yourself than it is to outsource it. And in fact, like you have to accept the fact that in most cases, the property manager doesn't care as much about your property as you do. And so the, I guess, consequences of that are if you could manage your property and there's $200 a month in maintenance, it might be 400 or 500. Milo, go. No. Bad dog. Hang on a second, guys. Close the store. I got it. You know the dog, he loves uh, loves to come out here and look at the squirrels. And there still are squirrels, believe it or not. It looks like the calm before the storm in the distance. I can see a large um, thunderstorm approaching. Hey everyone, hey Trevor, how you doing? Hey Mr. Mikhail, William, how you doing? Rajesh, Momentum Academy, Shaylin, uh, Seema, Ishi, Alex, Ellie. Good to see you guys all on. I appreciate you jumping in and smashing the like button. Um, that means a lot to the algorithm, of course, and, and getting people the notification to join in. And I didn't really have a very colorful title today, so we'll see the kind of momentum that we get. But um, yeah, we're talking about just whatever questions you guys have. As, as always, every Wednesday, I give the, the free updates or the free kind of coaching um, for you guys. So take advantage of that and, and ask me anything you want. But uh, yeah, like what's on my mind right now is just the frustrations of... I guess people in general, like people are generally incompetent. And so I'm feeling, um, I've had like two instances, actually three instances today where this like lack of communication or just, you know, general misunderstanding has cost, you know, a bit of money. And so I guess my new mindset for this year, for 2020 has been to abandon the frugal piece of, I guess the early retirement mindset that I had before and adapt like that my time frugality is more important than my money frugality. So for instance, there's a plumbing issue at one of the properties and it cost $400 to remediate this plumbing issue. I know of a plumber who would do it for 50 bucks and the property manager didn't know, they were freaking out, they just called like the most expensive company in town and like just took it in the throat for whatever the price was and just got it done. So they got, they got ripped off, right? Where like, I normally would manage that a lot cheaper and I would handle that situation better. They didn't understand, didn't know, right? So it was a training opportunity, but that's a $350 difference now that's a training opportunity, right? Or whatever it is, like a couple hundred bucks difference. Um, and so, yeah, it's just something I kind of wanted to share today. And for those people who are working towards financial independence, the laptop lifestyle, like, you know, being able to just chill on your laptop here and I have my laptop today, so. We need to do anything I actually have it on usually I don't usually I have it like unplugged 
but today I actually have, happen to have it on. I was looking at some listings. As a realtor, I like to peruse, and I'm a realtor pretty much for myself, but I like to peruse the market daily and look at all the new listings, and so it's one of my routines or habits so I can stay fresh on the market. Anything new that pops up in my area, typically it's like 50, 60 houses pop up a day. I just take a look at all of them and, and kind of get a feel for where the market's moving. So the sentiment right now in London is crazy, um, crazy hot, as in like, Things are going over ask again. There's a ton of heat. There's a lot of demand now that the market's starting to open up and that the lockdown's ending. So we're seeing a lot of heat and not enough listings to keep up with that. Uh, further, I think the low interest rate environment or the springtime, I guess, low interest rate promotion that a lot of lenders are pushing out there, while still being a bit more conservative in their lending approach, those that do qualify um, are having an opportunity to get really cheap debt, right? And so that's a, a catalyst, I guess, in a lot of ways. And that's something that's sort of pushing the market forward as things cool down and and I guess the open up again to the market we're seeing like a huge difference right as far as um, you know how how everything's you know evolving so that's what's up in the world and uh, if you're pursuing early retirement through real estate just know that if you plan to manage it yourself you're just self-employed basically um, if you're planning to have a manager in place just know it's gonna be more work than say a passive investing strategy like private lending. Um, my end end game will be always to have a real estate portfolio, but buying a real estate portfolio and then assuming out of it a much lower cash flow than I currently get. Like I realized that paying a $40,000 a year, you know, um, person versus paying $100,000 a year person, you can get different results in your portfolio. And if you want to literally not be called and not be stressed at all, you have to pay the premium dollars, right? And sometimes you pay the premium dollars to a good company and they don't even do a good job. So that's another thing you have to look out for. But if you can get really good management in place, well, you'll have to probably change it out eventually, but hopefully you can get good management in place and real estate investing can be passive. It's not that passive, um, but once everything is stabilized and rented out, there's not much that can go wrong when a property's all fixed up, then you can hand it over. But when you buy a property or you've owned a property in the last year that needed stabilizing, like you know, tenants had to leave, had to leave and renovations had to be done, there's a lot to that, a lot of time has to go in to that, so um, I don't wanna pretend on here that it's at all enjoyable to grind through multiple property renovations at once. It's not, it's hard work. And that path to early retirement, though it is a fast one, like you can get to early retirement really quickly, it is painful. And post you know, retirement, having a real estate portfolio is, if you don't enjoy it, and part of, like I, I kind of like part of it, so I, I can't say that I hate it entirely, but there are parts of it that I really d dislike. Inefficiency is one of them. It, it eats me alive, and so it's a mindset shift that I have to have now. And it, you know, it's, it's crazy. I'm at a place or perspective now where I'm more luxfire, and so it doesn't actually like that two hundred fifty-three dollar difference on the plumbing. It doesn't actually matter, like in the grand scheme of things. Instead of a thousand in cash flow, I might have like nine hundred a month on the average for the year now, or something to that effect. Right? It's a very minor overall and so i have to keep that in perspective and i have to realize that it doesn't really matter if my passive income is well into the six figures and it's way more than i need to live it doesn't matter so that's been something i've been kind of wrestling with but that's my rant for today i try to always have a rant and it's usually related to the last like six hours of phone calls that i've had or who i've talked to today or what i've been up to in other news today i had a great nap i had like an hour and a half nap um about an hour before, hour and a half before this, I get to have a nap. In between calls, there was just kind of like a lull, and I just shut my brain off and, and had a nap and 
that was fantastic. It's on my goal or vision board to have more naps, to enjoy life to the fullest. And part of that for me is, you know, when there's a snow or a uh, rainstorm at 2.30 in the morning, like there was last night, if you check my Instagram stories, I was chilling out there and enjoying it. And I love thunderstorms. I love like an aggressive monsoon style rainstorm. And so I was just out there relaxing with my dog, just enjoying it. And it gets me into a deep headspace where I'm thinking about the things that I want in my life and just reevaluating goals and just, it's all relaxing too at the same time. And so, yeah, like stayed up really late last night. And as a result now, I'm in a position where I was a little tired today, so I took a nap. So thankful for that opportunity. But let's talk about the mindset to, to retire early and we'll, we'll circle back. <laughs> That's funny. Um, what was I saying here? So think about the early retirement mindset. It comes down to three things, right? I say at the end of every single stream and I, I believe this is the, the way to early retirement and it's three levers. So every mindset has to evolve around these three levers and people have different, I guess, opinions about frugality and different opinions about you know, saving and investing. But the three things you have to be doing to reach early retirement are one, you have to figure out ways to spend less than you're currently spending now in almost all cases. Two, and that typically means spending less. When I say spend less, I mean spend less than 50% of your income. That's the target. Uh, and then earn more. By earn more, I mean try to earn a lot more than the average person in your country that you live in. So if you live in like middle of nowhere and average income is $20,000, if you're making 30, that's good. You're doing 50% better than most people in your area. And so that would mean that on average, you should have a better lifestyle than they do, or at least have a little bit less of a lifestyle than they do because you're living frugally and investing the difference, right? To build enough passive income that you can retire. And the third is you have to be smart with your, your money. You have to be keeping it moving. And mo movement of money into you know, growth is so important. And a lot of people sit on equity in their properties. They try to pay down their mortgages. They try to stuff it in a savings account where it earns nothing. They put it in cash, again, earning nothing. They hide it under their mattress. They put it in, in GICs or, or crap investment vehicles like treasury bills that earn nothing, like one, 2%, 3%. So their money isn't growing and working for them. You need to adhere to the three levers. You have to respect all three of them in order to reach early retirement um, in a reasonable time frame. Right? Like even if you were really good at saving, you lived like you spent less than 50% of what you earned and you're good at earning. Let's say you earned six figures, right? And you invested the difference in treasury bills at 1%. It would take you forever to retire. You'd be missing out on a lot of opportunity where your money soldiers could be working for you. Your money minions could be out there working for you. And even if you have 10 grand or 20 grand saved up, that's enough for it to be out there working for you. And it should be out there growing and multiplying. And that's the key piece to early retirement, right? And I think that um, you know, it's, it's one of those things you just have to sort of change your, your, your poor, poor mindset around all three of those topics. And whenever I enter any new investment, any life decision, I bring those three things back. Like, even if I want to go on a trip, I'm like, how does this play into my long-term plan? Am I screwing my future self? Did I just shoot myself in the foot? Um, or am I in a position where it doesn't really matter? Right? So that's something to think about in most, if not all of your decisions, right? And people just don't do that. They're like, hey, I'm just gonna go and like spend $10,000 on a trip or I'm just gonna buy this new house because my wife wants it and I want it. And it's like, did you run the numbers on that? Did you make sure that, that actually fits into your life goal? And uh, in almost all, I guess, every decision I've made has come down to how my future self look back on this, right? Like, will I live with regret if I didn't go have this experience? Or will I live with regret if I go through this experience and I'm poor and have to keep working in the future because my current self 
got a little too much gratification. So, uh, oh, I see some good comments and questions here. We're gonna get down to some rabbit holes here. Um, probably some uh, holes we shouldn't go down, but ah, screw it, let's do it. So the first question was, when did you decide you'd like to pursue early retirement? Um, and that was uh, Momentum Edu Academy there. So when did I decide? I don't know, I, I, I think I've always had an, uh, an affinity or a liking of, of business and money from like 14, I was probably 12, I was hustling paper routes. At 10, I was hustling paper routes. You know, when I was like 10 or 11 years old, I went and they had these rechargeable batteries. This is like, I guess 2000 or 2001 or something like that. And rechargeable batteries were a big thing and Game Boys were still huge, right? And people loved like batteries. I just went and bought like a rechargeable battery thing for like 35 bucks with my paper route money. And I bought a bunch of batteries that it could charge all the different sizes. It was pretty, pretty nifty back then. And I was renting out the batteries at like 25 cents and I was charging my school using the charger, like using the, the school's hydro. And I had a little business going like that when I was like 10, right? I was cutting grasses. I was, there's been things that I've been doing my whole life. So I've been entrepreneurial in that sense, I guess, but I was not at all, I guess, about, I, I didn't know anything about investing. I didn't know anything about, you know, how to earn a lot of money. Single parent household, my mom earned the poverty line. So we were used to living on like nothing. For times we were on food stamps. So I was very much used to being the, I was the poor kid in school. And so I guess financial independence, when I found it around 17, I, I just got lucky. I stumbled upon this blog and I, maybe it wasn't luck. It was like, I was literally searching. I was doing a project and I was searching on people that had reached like financial independence. And it started with this article that I found in this investor magazine, this 40 year old dude who saved up a million dollars and he had a million bucks. He had two kids in a, in a white picket fence family and he was investing and getting like a 6% dividend return. And that's all he did was trade. And I was like, geez, that sounds like the job that I want to have. And there's nothing else in the world that I'd rather do more than that, which is almost nothing. Um, sitting on a laptop for a couple hours a day. I'm like, that's, that's what I want. Um, and so that's kind of where I discovered the early retirement movement and sort of uncovered that it was, the math was really simple and uncovered that it actually wasn't near as you know, daunting as I had thought that you, know, you, could, you can actually retire early in like five years. And so that for me was, was an eye opener at 17. I kind of ran into the blogs like Early Retirement Extreme. Before Mr. Money Mustache existed on the internet, there was Early Retirement Extreme. He kind of passed the torch to Mr. Money Mustache in an official article. And that's how a lot of us from his blog found Mr. Money Mustache. So I was an early adopter, like back when no one was talking about this. There was like one book on uh, financial independence in general and because the internet wasn't talking about it. The movement, fire movement didn't even exist then. There was like a small early, early retirement movement I'm talking 2009 when I sort of stumbled on it. And, uh, you know, I remember there was like Your Money or Your Life by Vicki Robbins, and that was a big one for me. And then Early Retirement Extreme. I don't know if I have, the, I don't know where the book is. It's not in this bookshelf, it's in a different bookshelf. But I would show you guys, I have a signed copy, and actually it's, it's weird because I read it again more recently, and like I physically met one of my heroes, Jacob. My mindset has changed so much since 2010, 2009 that I read the book and I was like, geez, a lot of what I used to believe so wholeheartedly, I don't anymore. And so that was for me, um, eye-opening more recently in 2019, I, late 2019, I reread the book and I'm like, I think I've lost my way with the Renaissance man movement and the, you know, doing everything yourself if you can to save money. And now I'm like, I'll just earn more money or I'll just use my passive income to pay for that inconvenience so I don't have to deal with it anymore. And so that's, it's been an interesting like anecdotal shift that I've noticed. But 
Um, yeah, I guess around 17 is the answer when I sort of discovered it. And I, by 18, I was full into it. I was in my dorm room at 17. I went to university at 17. I graduated at 21. So I guess I worked a full-time job while I was in school. And so that allowed me to save and get through school debt-free. I was going to write a book, like how to get through school debt-free and just never did. I've been wanting to write books for years and just never had the time. Too focused on top-line growth of like buying properties and chasing deals and buying businesses and things like that. But, um, and pinching pennies for a long time. I did a lot of pinching pennies. But yeah, I guess early retirement was super simple. I was like, geez, um, all I have to do is earn average income. The, the idea in that book was that you could earn an average income and then just be super frugal and you can retire in like five years, right? So, um, yeah. That's the cool thing about it. Okay, so next question. Try to scroll down here and find out where I am. What's good? Good to see you guys on. What are some pockets left out around London, Ontario with affordable housing? 350 to 400,000. I'm looking for a cash flowing rental within the Lucan, Ingersoll, St. Thomas, Strathroy uh, quadrilateral. Okay, so Rajesh, um, you can find a ton of properties. Like just do a search on realtor.ca and search from like 200,000 to 350,000. And a lot of pop up in London alone. Um, I've not seen in some of the outlying areas that much of a discount, given how much harder it is to rent, how much lower the rents are, how much uh, less diversity in the economy there is in those other areas. So like for myself personally, if I was to be investing in like Strathroy, I'd expect like double or triple the cash flow that I'm gonna get in London, right? Cause it's just, it's further out, right? Why would you, you'd want more cash flow for sure. But um, there's still tons of deals in London, like geez, I, properties jump up all the time in like the 200K range. So I know the average house price is probably in the 400 range, but there's tons in the lesser nice neighborhoods or even in the good neighborhoods, they're just beat up. So if you're willing, Rajesh, to do a little bit of renovations, a little fix up, you can find stuff um, and just transform it, like buy a single family and turn it into a duplex or so forth and, and such like that. But just go out and network and talk to investors because there's lots of stuff that, that pops up. Like, geez, right now, I know a property right now on Oxford and Warncliffe you can get for like 360, 370,000 off market. It's a four bath, two bath, detached house um, in a great area of town, close to downtown, close to Western University. Um, that's an example right now. It's not even on market. You can message me on Instagram if you're interested in details on that. But just like thinking out loud um, of opportunities, they exist all the time. But you need to be talking to like an agent, you need to be talking to people in the network who, who know what they're looking for, right? And you'll find that. Next question. Do, 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 do. It's annoying I have to scroll. I do need a better software to look at questions, I must say. London is the place where real estate is moving, eh? So yeah, I mean, Jay Miguel, it looks like uh, all around the world we're seeing a, a big resurgence in, in real estate prices. Now that things are opening up, there's a lot of pent-up demand being released. So even in markets like Orlando or places in, in the US are opening up and we're seeing a ton of demand in, in those markets that I follow there. And yeah, throughout Canada, we're seeing a ton of heat right now real estate but yeah London specifically is doing very well it's interesting though because I'm sort of in the medium short to medium term I'm actually kind of bearish on London Ontario only because you know they've shut down the schools till January and so this fall there's gonna be a lot of you know now that everything's kind of gone online there's gonna be a lot of student bedrooms but and I, ever, I know personal stories of people jumping on and, and just throwing their bedroom on um, and literally taking uh, you know, their bedroom for like they're paying 500 bucks for it, putting it on Facebook Marketplace for 300. 
But there's people putting up apartments, they're, they're renting for a thousand, for 800, and just walking away and saying, hey, I'm selling it. And so there's a ton of excess rental inventory that exists and no one wants to move, like none of the good tenants seem to want to move during COVID. And so you got a whole bunch of bad tenants applying for places and a whole bunch of extra inventory that here in London or any you know university town, I think in the fall, we're going to see either rents drop, vacancy rates skyrocket, and that relates, or I guess, translates into landlords having less profitability. And so there should be tons of opportunity for investment from a rental property perspective in the fall here in London. So I'm kind of sitting back and if a good deal pops up on MLS, I'm, I'll jump on it, but I'm not seeing a ton right now that's like extremely attractive to me. And even off market, a lot of the stuff that I'm seeing isn't near as attractive as, you know, say I'd like it to see, or given the market climate, I just don't think it's justified. So that's my sort of perspective on that. Um, I think that we're gonna have a bit of a, a reality check when some of the stuff comes back in and we don't recover to the same heights we had before. And the market's already priced in pretty much a full recovery at this point. So I think there's gonna be some reality check coming in. And, and in our local market, it's gonna be hard for landlords. We're gonna be facing a time where um, it's not gonna be as, as great as it once was. Question, is it a good time to get into real estate? Um, I mean, any time is a good time, I guess, but is it the best time? If you can find a fearful COVID seller, um, maybe, but on the MLS right now in my market, no. I would say it's as hot as it was before, and if not hotter, because you get the spring rush, right? And a lot of people just buying for themselves, and those homeowners who are just getting in the market and buying, um, they're going to be overpaying, whereas an, as an investor, I'm just focused on the cash flow. I don't care what things look like, right? So um, there is a lot of money in the market right now, and a lot of people have money. And so with low interest rates, you're taking advantage of, of the cheap debt and buying real estate. So it depends on your area you live in. There's, it's so specific, right? It's hard for me to say, hey, like get into real estate or don't. But if you can buy a solid property that cash flows, it's never a bad time. Like to start making 500 bucks a month positive cash flow from a rental property, better you started now than a year from now, right? Regardless of what the market does, if you can get in, start getting cash flow today, start paying down your mortgage, not that you wanna pay down your mortgage, you wanna refinance that money out, but start building equity, I guess, in the property, uh, you're gonna be better off in the long term. So 10 years from now, you'd be thankful that you bought today. And it won't matter if you bought now or in the fall, right? That five or 10% difference in purchase price, if there was even a crash of five or 10%, which I'm not saying that there's going to be, but if that were to happen, long term, you're not going to feel it. You're gonna remember the cash flow and you're gonna remember that you have you know, significant equity now, 10 years later. And so I guess the best time to buy was yesterday, but the second best time to buy is, is now, right? That's the, that's the saying and, and it holds true, especially for cash flowing real estate. Everyone is watching the 55, 56 people, 54 people now, 55 people who are watching, uh, smash that like button. All of you guys, smash the like button. It helps the algorithm. Let's everyone know that the stream we're doing today is a good one, that there is actually value being provided. It tells the algorithm, hey, uh, Mike Rosart is here giving his time for free and you should come watch. And then the algorithm tells my subscribers, right? It only bumps out to a small number, but it'll bump out to more if, uh, if you guys smash that like button. So do that for me, please. Shaylin asks a question, says, just a quick question today. I was wondering where you'd recommend people, and it's never a quick question, because you know I like to, <laughs> I like to go on and on and, and go on these random asides or tangents. Uh, you wonder where you would recommend people learn about personal finance related taxes that's well organized like the HBA tax course um, you took. Thanks, Mike. Um, geez. 
just the internet's been like, I go into Google and I find like these random websites, I can't even think of them right now, but if you're searching a targeted tax question, you go into Google and you can get an answer for pretty much anything that you want, right? So I've always just like situationally looked into like, for instance, if I was gonna burn a property, I'd look into what are the implications of a refinance on a rental property? What are you know the implications of this or that? And so I always found that like a tax course was boring. Like when I took the tax course at, uh, at Western, it was very boring, really dry, right? So I don't know, like reading 300 pages of tax stuff isn't, per isn't you know, valuable, but I think if you need to know like the 20 things about real estate investing, tax related, you should search out those things and answer those, those questions for you. And if you don't know what questions to ask, I mean, just start by reading a basic guide on taxes and rental properties. And that should stimulate the brain and get it thinking of questions that aren't covered in that initial guide. But there's a ton of great free information on the internet. There's great YouTube videos. You can probably type in the same questions onto YouTube and find good people who are providing free content. There's so many people dropping so much great content out there that I don't even know if you need like a course like IB. Like everything that I know about real estate investing and tax and you know finance and accounting, I could have learned outside of IB. So yeah, I don't think you need to go to a program like that. I don't know if there is one that's I mean, there's, there's probably a dozen of them you could buy for like a thousand dollars, probably a bunch of thousand dollar courses you could go out there and buy because everyone and their brother has a course, right? And you could probably buy that has like succinct Canadian Ontario rental property taxes. And it would probably be better than what you're gonna learn in a general like Western or Ivy course, to be honest, um, because it's so targeted to what you're looking for. You can buy what you wanna consume or you can just find it for free with a bit more extra energy effort. You can find the answers to pretty much anything. Um, there's nothing that I haven't been able to find the answer online to. And there was like maybe one or two questions that were so nuanced that I couldn't find an answer on Google. I reached out to an accountant friend of mine and just asked them, right? So go make friends with some accountants and, you know, provide some value to them and then have them pay you back that value, right? Or, or just hire an accountant and ask your accountant when you're doing your taxes. Uh, probably better to have an accountant anyway long term than to do your taxes yourself. In the beginning, it doesn't make sense. Obviously you outsource because if you can just do it yourself using a software like Simple Tax. But once you get a more complicated return, you build your net worth up, it might make more sense to outsource that to someone who's got the, the expertise there. Uh, okay. Hey, Prapa. Jason, how you doing? Ishi says, hey Mike, would you max out your RSP or TFSA? What are your opinions on this? It sucks I get the same questions um, over and over again. So many streams over. I should just take tidbits of the answer to this question at 26 minutes and 30 seconds and turn it into a five minute video, right? I've answered this one so many times, but I guess I'll do it again in a really succinct version. But the idea is it depends on so many factors like your current income and tax bracket, um, like, you know, what does your RSP and TFSA look like right now? Uh, what do you have as far as like debt? Like if you have credit card debt right now and you're talking to me and you have $20,000 in credit card debt at 20%, you shouldn't be putting your, any money in your RSP or TFSA at all probably. Um, you should pay off that debt it's a 20% after-tax guaranteed return, which is equivalent to like a 30 or 40% pre-tax return, right? So there's that. But the TFSA is after-tax contributions. So everything you put into your tax-free savings account is after-tax money. Anything you put into your registered retirement savings plan, your RRSP, is pre-tax money. So you get a tax credit back for that. If you're in a low tax bracket now, don't contribute to RRSP. If you make 20 grand a year or 30 grand a year, and in the future you plan on making 50 or 100, don't put any money into RRSP because you need a deduction back for any money you put in. Basically, it's like a sheltered um, contribution, right? And so you're choosing to save the tax at say 20% tax rate 
and follow back with, what the heck? <laughs> no, that's disgusting. I just muted that person. Sorry, guys. Um, what was I gonna say? So I lost my train of thought on, uh, on that. Oh, uh, RRSP, when you withdraw, you withdraw at a higher tax bracket. It actually could be not advantageous for you, right? It could be like you contribute when you're, you know, at a 20% tax bracket, and then when you retire, you pull the money out from your RRSP, and you could be at a 40 or 50% tax bracket, in which case, every dollar you contributed to your RRSP is costing you 20% more tax. So the idea of it being a tax sheltered vehicle is mitigated, right? Or in fact, like negative for you. So it depends on so many factors. But if you're making like 100 grand a year, you have a great salary, and you plan to retire at some point and have less income and hopefully withdraw from your RRSP in a lower taxed year, it makes sense to jam your RRSPs full and go back on previous years and jam that contribution room full too. And the tax-free savings account is a beautiful thing. Everything that grows inside of a TFSA is tax-free. If you invest it in mortgages, TFSA, you go invest it with you know, a third party like Olympia Trust and go invest that in a mortgage, you now could get a 12% return on your tax-free savings account tax-free. So that's, that's a beautiful thing when it's maxed out when you're in your early retirement. It's a core pillar of the early retirement mindset, right? It's around like efficiency of how the third pillar is maximizing returns on your money, right? A maximized return is a tax efficient one. So sometimes an 8% tax-free return is the same as, you know, like a 12% pre-tax return. So not all returns are created equally to be tax efficient. And a quick conversation with an accountant in a few YouTube videos, and you can watch like the ones that I did where you can get each person can earn $50,000 tax-free in Canada with Canadian eligible dividends. So a couple can bring in $100,000 a year in Canadian eligible dividends tax-free, effectively. With the gross up tax credit, you pay no tax. That's $100,000 a year in income for the couple, no tax. On top of that, you have your TFSA. If you guys max that out over your whole life, you get a 500 grand in the TFSA by you know 40 years old or 50 years old, and you could each have that, both partners. So that could be a million dollars in a tax-free savings account also earning another 50 grand a year. So in theory, we could be retiring 10 years from now with 100,000 in dividend income, completely tax-free, and a tax-free savings account bringing another 50 grand or more, completely tax-free. That's 150 grand a year, completely tax-free. So jam the TFSA full if you can um, after your RSP has been contributed to because it's after-tax dollars and RSP is pre-tax dollars. But um, the idea being that long-term, they're gonna have to shut down this TFSA program. It is unsustainable. When a lot of us investors start growing, is, here's how it works. So a tax-free savings account you can contribute to it each and every year, but any growth inside of your TFSA increases the room inside of it. So if you have $100,000 in a tax, or I think the year, it's around 75,000 or 70,000 this year for the tax-free savings account. Now, if you've been investing that all these years since they created the program like over a decade ago, um, you'd, be at a, you'd be probably at 150,000 in your TFSA. If you just let that grow to a million bucks over a 20, 30 year period and keep contributing to it, you now have a room of a million dollars in your TFSA. If you take that million dollars out, you can always put that million back in whenever you want. That room is forever increased. And that's a tax-free vehicle that they can't take away. They used to do this with insurance policies in the 80s before they regulated. And they realized that they were, they were giving too much away to the wealthy and they weren't paying enough tax. So it's a tax saving you should take advantage of before the government reforms and gets rid of it. We already know like the conservative government increased the 10,000 a year contribution room. Uh, the liberals, I think, brought it back down to like 5,500 because, you know, liberals and NDPs don't want people to be able to have tax-free. They want to tax the shit out of anyone who has any wealth so they can pay for all the social programs for the people who aren't working, right? It, it makes sense. Um, but if you want to try to avoid tax, then you want to take advantage of those programs while they still exist, right? And the government almost never retracts uh, something that they've 
you know, allowed, right? Often they just say no more going forward. So anyway. Gonna go up here to the next question. Uh, happy Wednesday. Next question is, what are some renovation contracting models? What are some tips and tricks regarding contracting for first time buyer looking to house hack and rental hack by adding a basement suite? So Rajesh, if it's your first time, you've just gotta get a lot of different opinions and that's the most important piece that you can do, right? Um, maybe I could do it, like you can watch some videos right now on YouTube that would explain to you the process of construction. Like you watch like finishing a basement from start to finish. You get to see like the framing and the insulating and the boarding and the taping and the you know electrical rough and HVAC rough and plumbing rough ends, when they go in, then when you board, then when you put floors down, or then when you paint, I guess, before you put the floors down, you put the floors down, then you do the plumbing and electrical final finishes, et cetera, and so forth. So you can walk through that process um, online on YouTube pretty easily to learn. Um, it's also like available online if you knew what questions to ask, you could find the answer to pretty much anything you want. But I guess from a pricing perspective, just bring in three contractors and get their different quotes, right? Or even subcontract parts of it out. And you know, might bring in a plumber who's independent from the framer and the plumber might be able to tell you if the framer's done a good enough job, right? The electrician's gonna tell you for sure if the framer messed something up and made it hard for their life, right? And the boarders are gonna complain if the framers didn't do something properly. And so best of all, if you're doing a big project, you get a building inspector to take a look at all the work. You get a permit, go down to the city hall and get a permit on the work that you're doing. And the city will inspect all the work being done and make sure it's done properly. They'll go a little probably too far, a little too anal with some of their code, but you'll be sure that there won't be much going you know, south, won't be anything going wrong, right? So if you're just starting out, probably get a building permit. And that's a great way to learn because the inspector's gonna educate you along the way. There's just so many ways you can get educated along the way, right? And uh, I guess some things like flooring and, and paint and kitchen cupboards, they don't require permits. So you just have to find an independent third party to come in and give you a different quote. Compare all the quotes and you'll know exactly what the cost is if you have a few of the, uh, if you have a few of the people you know, give you different in quotes, you'll know exactly what it costs, right? They're all gonna give you their opinions. Some of them will be wrong, some are gonna be right. You'll look in between the lines and the average of all of them and you'll know exactly the truth. So that's been my opinion. That's how I learned. That's how I came up in construction. I never worked at a construction job in my life. I just have worked with hundreds of subtrades on all of my projects, right? Having been involved in like 50 projects, more than that, but a hundred projects now, um, I've seen it happen so many times. I've worked with the trades to learn and that's the key piece. Okay, next question. Uh, no, we did that question. Okay, found my spot again, scrolled, scrolled. Natalie, how you doing? Thank you for the comment. Tara says, what is the best place to get a multifamily funding for a fiveplex on a two to five year mortgage? That depends, Tara, on your personal circumstances. You could go A-Lender commercial financing. Um, you could go A-Lender residential financing. RBC does up to six units as a residential mortgage. Um, the other big banks go up to fourplex as a residential mortgage. Um, oh, Desjardins does up to seven units as a residential mortgage, meaning like two and a half percent residential mortgage, 80% loan of value, 20% uh, down. But there are also tons of commercial lenders and all the big banks have commercial division too that will do like 25% down. The credit unions are a great place to go where you get 25, 30% down. So there's lots of places you can get financing. Um, it just depends on your situation, right? If you're like a high earner with a great credit score, it should be a cakewalk. But if you don't have like great income, you can prove uh, not T4 income, like you're self-employed and you know, maybe you only have a year of self-employed, then it gets a bit more tricky and you need a really good lender to do that. Um, 
someone I like who I've been starting to use is Lend City. Take a look at those guys. They're great. They're with Dominion Lending. Um, and they've been, from what I see, they seem to be a really good lender and they know how to get people to 50. I want to do a video just on them and they're not even paying me to do anything. I just want to call it out because I think that they're a good lender that people should be looking at. Um, but they can go, they have lenders that will do from zero to five, five to 10 properties, 10 to 20 properties, and then up to 50 properties. So you can just like buy in your own name up to 50 properties, right? And so that's something that like, was like, oh wow, I had a conversation with the lender and they're like, yeah, we have a guy who's got like 96 properties. He keeps buying more. He just goes to a commercial lender who looks for that, right? And is okay with that. So there's no real limit. There's no real ceiling to how many you can buy unless you're dealing with the wrong lender. So you're going to the bank and talking to a, a person there who, who doesn't know anything, who doesn't specialize in that type of, you know, class of investing, right? Um, but I've used them once and they seem pretty good. I've used uh, Ali Jamal's pretty good in London too. I've used him for a couple of properties. I haven't used him a lot for commercial, but I hear he has a good um, thing going on for, for commercial there. Um, who wants to know? RBC to, to throw out. They've been pretty good as far as um, their commercial side is pretty good. The residential side didn't have good success at all. Bank of Montreal has been terrible to deal with. I avoid them pretty much exclusively for, for mortgages now. Um, TD, same thing, super conservative. I don't like them at all. Scotiabank, extremely aggressive. I love the Scotiabank programs that exist right now for like zero to 10 rental properties. They're fantastic. I haven't dealt with some of their commercial division. Um, the, some of the credit unions are fantastic. If you can build a relationship, that's a key piece. Um, but yeah, I'd be happy to, well, someone just commented down here. I had several issues. So yeah, I'd be happy to, to hear more about those and how that went. Um, Cause I hear, I hear good things, but again, I haven't had that much experience with them. I just, you know, one deal. So, um, yeah, I'd be happy to, to always have those conversations. Some people have had good experiences and bad experiences with lenders. It's often it, it has to deal with the fact that like the thing that I look for in a, in a, in a good lender is their response time. So do they get back to you quickly, um, two, the programs that they have available and the lenders that they have access to. And three is their ability to pitch a business case. So that's really important, right? Is being able to make sure that they understand your whole situation and they can pitch that effectively to, uh, basically the right lender, right? And being able to line that up, that's what makes a good uh, good broker, I guess. So yeah, I mean, I've had, it's funny, I've had some really good brokers screw up on me and like have a deal fall apart. And it's not necessarily their fault in some cases. Um, this is one thing you have a couple of situations that recently just happened, but sometimes it's just the lender doesn't like your portfolio. They don't like the way it's presented. They don't like, you know, something about like your last deal or this deal. So it's, that's why it's really, really important to always have three key lenders. Like I have three lenders that I'm always going with and I try to always have a backup lender or two backup lenders whenever I'm closing a deal. So don't just go to like TD and just apply with them. Apply with many different lenders and then when you have, a, you know, it's better to have two approvals than no approvals, right? And almost always you put one horse in the race and you'll be screwed, right? You want to have a couple horses in the race to increase your chances of success. So that's been, been my thought. And worst case scenario, you can always be in a situation where you can, uh, you know, get, B lender financing and then go back and get the lender financing again. So hope that helps. Next question. Uh, what if you could talk about legal versus legal secondary suites is obtaining a permit for renovations necessarily particular when you're doing most of it yourself, Jamie, yes, you must always get a permit. Um, no matter what, unless it's like existing and you're like just working with an existing suite that you have and you're not doing any structural stuff or anything major at all. Um, if it's a finished basement already and you're not doing any framing, you're just like fixing drywall and doing floors and cabinets and paint and changing a toilet, none of that requires a permit. But if you're building walls and rooms and you're reconstructing or finishing an unfinished space, you need to go get a permit for that. Um, and then obviously if you wanna get the top dollar for selling the property or refinancing it, 
getting it to be a legal secondary dwelling unit would be advantageous. So then you go get the permits. And even if, oftentimes, like if it's already a finished unit, you go there and like, you might have to put a smoke, like some sprinklers in or a smoke detector that's interconnected, minor stuff. It's typically not like a major overhaul. It's not as drastic as people think it is to make a secondary unit. Oftentimes you can work with what you got and they'll work with you to find a solution to make the unit legal. Um, so it's important to work with your inspector and find out what they're willing to do. Oftentimes I've had bedrooms that didn't have proper egress window, but as long as I had two escapes from the unit, one from like the living room and one you know, door going out to the outside, I was okay. I was uh, passed. Cause you actually only really need two as per the bylaw you know, and, and the rules on the Ontario building code, you only need two means of escape, right? And so that actually doesn't mean you need an egress window in a bedroom legally. It's a legal bedroom without it. Um, but people often get confused about that stuff and municipalities have different rules, but the Ontario building code supersedes it all, right? So, um, yeah. Does one of the levers include believing that coronavirus is a hoax? Uh, no. So I don't know if it's a hoax. I, I think it's actually a real virus, to be honest. I think that, um, you know, I, I, you know, I've seen some really interesting conflicting information and I think that there are some agendas being pushed here that have caused a bit of an overreaction. I don't want to spend a whole segment on this, but for those people that follow me, they know that if you watch Tony Robbins segment, he did an interview with a bunch of great medical practitioners that weren't on the payroll of, uh, I won't get into it, but like some of the people making a lot of decisions in in the US, not medical professionals, owned rights to the vaccines, right? And so that's a conflict of interest. So a lot of those studies couldn't be trusted that the CDC put out and the, the WHO put out and things like that. But um, let's just assume that like the virus is real. I think it is real. And let's assume that we know, let's look at the data. Who has died from the virus? In Alberta, Canada, the average age of death is 83. 83. You have a, <laughs> in, in Canada, it's in the, the high 60s. If you're under the age of 40, the probability of death on the no total number of cases that people have had, and we don't know how many people have actually had it because a lot of people haven't been tested. We're doing a lot of guessing and antibody testing to figure out who actually has had it. And I think that more people have had it than what we think. But if you look at the deaths and look at the demographics than the deaths, my age, 0.003% chance of death. The common flu, 0.004 chance of death. It is the same as the common flu for me, like to kill me, it's, it's not going to kill me, statistically speaking, just like the flu isn't going to statistically kill me. In fact, pneumonia is worse than COVID for someone under 40. That's the data we're actually working with. Given that data, and given that like the people under 40 mostly run the country, they could have kept working and we should have social distance, we should be washing our hands, we should have a mask, we should be doing all of that stuff in general because no one wants to get sick from the flu. Like we should all be bringing these practices into our businesses and I think it's smart that we're doing this and people are moving online. I like that about the fact that this movement has brought that, brought us to that stage. But shutting down the economy was wrong. Hands down, with the data we have, only the elderly needed to be protected and those at high risk. That, that's a fact. The young people like myself, anyone under 40, who didn't have any pre-existing health conditions, COVID doesn't kill us at a high rate. 0 0.004, 0 .00, 0 0.006, right? Like there's like such little percentage of death in this age demographic. You look at the deaths in Canada, look who's died, and then look into if they had asthma or a heart condition or they're already sick with cancer. Those people who are old and already, you know, gonna die in a couple of years, and it's, that sounds terrible, but like we're already going to die of something. They were the, mostly the deaths, um, were the elderly and those at high risk. The healthy individuals with no pre-existing conditions, by and large, recovered. 
right? Like 40 to 50% of people who get COVID aren't, aren't sick, aren't that sick, like a little bit sick. Then another like 30 to 40% of those recover, no problem. Like 10% even make it to the hospital, right? And of that, 1% of those people. And of those, almost all of them are elderly and high at risk. Um, so anyway, I, go look at the data for yourself. Um, it's a bit of an overreaction. If you look at the, we have the actual data now of who's dying in Canada. We can see the number of people who got the, who got the virus, it's a guesstimation, and the number of people who died. And again, like there's been a lot of cases where like someone died of a heart attack and they're like, oh, well he had COVID in his system, so we'll label it COVID. And there's been a lot of that too, but like I don't wanna get down that, um, I guess like conspiracy rabbit hole. Let's assume that all the deaths are real and that who cares, like the Canadian government was actually giving hospitals almost double the funding if they'd had COVID. So they, they had an incentive to overrepresent the number of deaths, but let's forget the fact that the incentives are stacked to overrepresent. Let's forget the fact that there's thousands of doctors and MDs who are coming out with their side of the story, I guess, or what they're seeing in the field, right? And um, I think we didn't have the data we have today, right? We didn't know what was gonna happen. And so it was better to be conservative and safe and shut the economy down. But in hindsight, with the data that we have, we don't need to be near as fearful as we were. Fear was at an all time high. And I think that was unnecessary. Um, the amount of fear that was existing in, in, out there. So thank you for triggering me on that. And if you follow me on Instagram, you've seen I've done a lot of sharing of that type of data. Because um, all we have is, is really data, right? The rest is just noise and fear. So we have to look at who, who sent the data out and you know what, what the implications of that are. Like, can we even trust the death rates? Can we even trust the number of cases, et cetera, and so forth. So, um, but no, one of those levers does not include believing coronavirus is a hoax because coronavirus is real. It's just, we overreacted to the severity of the virus. Um, it is not a big deal for someone who is healthy. And so locking them in a room for like 90 days in quarantine doesn't, isn't a, I guess the fall, the economic fallout of crushing the economy and costing people in you know, potentially their houses and their businesses is an overreaction. There should be a right to choose how you, if you wanna be exposed to it or not. Um, for instance, like if someone offered me a hundred thousand dollars, I would definitely get exposed to the virus, for sure. I'm co that confident that it would not take me out. Now, I guess it has the same likelihood as the flu to kill me. So like, I don't wanna get the flu either, to be honest. I'd probably have to pay me 50 grand to get the flu too. But um, yeah, I mean, it sucks in general. For all the people who are high at risk and suffered from COVID, it's terrible. We had tens of thousands of people die in the 2017, 2018 flu season. Tens, there's like hundreds of thousands of people who have died, right, in North America from the flu every year, and it's terrible. But we don't see on the news like 86,000 people died of the flu in the last flu season. Like, nobody even brought that up. But now when it's all COVID related, it's all of a sudden it's everywhere and it shuts the economy down, right? So I think that it was just a little bit of a, uh, once the news cycles pass, people realize that like the fear was at an all time high and that we made some irrational decisions when we were fearful and we were extra conservative when we didn't need to be. But it is what it is and we protect it. I think it was smart to protect the elderly. It was smart to protect those who are high at risk. They should be quarantined and they should have the right to not have to go to work. But uh, yeah, a lot of people are abusing this virus and, and taking advantage of it. Hello man, could you talk about the mindset and intensity with which you approach financial independence? Was it something you thought about daily or attacked on a more passive process? Sam, in the beginning, it was with a full intensity. Like I was literally, morning i'd wake up and i'd be thinking about like ways to improve right so for me I, I lived and breathed it i did it with extreme intensity that's why i retired at 24 right it was because that was what i made my life about like from 17 to 24 
that's pretty much all I focused on, right? I was focused on how to earn more money, how to save as much as I possibly could. People who knew me knew that I didn't spend on anything. Like I was super frugal to the max uh, in ways that I'm not now and don't need to be now. But um, yeah, and then of course, maximizing returns. That's why I got into real estate investing. I went from stock trading to real estate investing because I could lever up five to one at a 3% cost of debt. So with real estate, you put 20% down payment down, the bank gives you 80%. So every dollar you invest in real estate, you get $5 of real estate. A levered return on a 10% return on real estate in general, that means that your down payment is doing a 50% return on its money. And to get that kind of money consistently in the stock market, you just can't. So that's something that I like about real estate that uh, I didn't like as much about stocks. But yeah, of course, I was extremely passionate. Today, I don't track my spending, I don't budget like I used to. At the end of the year, during tax time, we'll look at what we've spent, that's pretty much it. Um, I don't have the same intensity towards fire that I did, but that's because I've already unlocked fire, right? So any extra incremental time I spend trying to save money or like, you know, I, I guess I sort of focus on maximizing returns still to this day, but um, it's one of those things where my daughter probably just took a couple more steps. She's been getting very close to walking, so you can hear that in the background. And it just so happens that this office I decided to stream in is literally right outside like the living room and the uh, kitchen. So sorry for that if you're hearing that. Uh, what was I gonna say? Uh, I guess the last part of your question, daily or more passively? You can do it both ways, to be honest. Um, the increased intensity just got me there a little bit faster. Like instead of getting there in nine years to early retirement, I got there in like six or seven, right? Because I did it with extreme intensity. And so, yeah, I mean, it's how fast do you wanna get there? How like diligent do you wanna be with that? You could just honestly say, I'm just gonna put like 40% of my income in savings, dial down my spending a little bit, and then go on autopilot. Just invest in exchange traded funds. You'll get there in like 10 years. Anyone can retire early in like 10 years, right? So um, I'm of the mindset that fire can be extremely passive if you want it to be. Fed just announced US will be at near 0% through to 2022. What a freaking joke. Yeah, but the Fed could also adjust their um, expectations on that. We could see that if the market recovers in a big way, by the way, that the first thing that that means is that that means we're not recovering till 2022, right? Interest rates are only low when the economy is depressed and they need to stimulate the economy. The lower the interest rates go, the more that people wanna borrow, right? The more incentive there is for people to go borrow money and spend in the economy and for investors to borrow and hire people, right? So um, that's actually a bad sign. It's a good sign for investors, but it's a bad sign for the economy at, at large, right? People believing the economy is gonna be recovered by the fall. The Fed is saying otherwise when they release news like that. So keep that in mind, your investing strategy is that the governments of the world currently, and maybe they're just saying 2022 to keep investor confidence high, to like, if I was gonna be investing and I thought, you know, for the next two years, interest rates are gonna be super low, that would make me more bullish to wanna invest, right? So they're, they're pumping money into the economy, they're pumping all of this in, and it's at a point where, um, yeah, I, I think that like, it might be a bit artificial, to be honest, but it is what it is. Next question. Mm, I lost my spot here. Okay, I found it. William's question is next. Mike says, how do you spend so little on groceries? I know you'll say flip app. Do you not eat meat, not use packaged goods? I spend two and a half times your numbers and can't seem to close the gap. Thanks. So William, I don't even do a lot of the shopping anymore, to be honest. My wife does most of the shopping, um, but some things we do is like, again, the flip app is, you knew I was gonna say that, but that gets me like, 30, 40, 50% off groceries. Mostly we buy only lost leaders, if that makes sense. So we plan our meals around what's on sale. As an example, like I'm, I love juice. 
and Oasis has some great juice. They are regular $2 or $2.20 a juice. But they come on sale for like 89 cents. And it's like at one store, you know, at least every month it's on sale. And so we'll buy like three, four cases and I'll put them in the garage and I'll store them on a shelf. And so my juice supply is half the cost of probably what you're paying for juice on average, right? I just stockpile and buy a little bit. Um, as far as like fresh groceries and things like that, we just buy only lost liters. So if avocados are on sale and yams are on sale, that's what we're buying this week. If next week it's potatoes, we buy that or we buy a few weeks worth, cut them up, dice them and freeze them in our freezer. And now we have like freshly cut skinned or if we wanna leave the skins on, we leave the skins on in our freezer, right? And so that's a big way to keep costs down. That's just been something like that is a routine for us. We also, one thing that we implemented a while back was we only go to the grocery store every other week. Produce can last two weeks in your fridge and freezer for the most part. And so we only go to the grocery store twice a month. And now I'm probably spending, we spend a little more because we have diapers. Like I have two kids and a dog, so we gotta buy dog food now. And um, that's an extra expense. I'm probably spending closer to five or 600 a month right now on groceries. And that's because like, again, like my mentees will sometimes eat with us or like I'll have guests over and so I'll, I'll buy a little more for that. I can afford to spend a couple thousand a month if I wanted to on groceries, right? But um, yeah, it's just about like going less. I think going twice a month is key. Every, every two weeks, uh, and then we do like a two, $300 purchase. We load up, we have tons of groceries. There's a huge stockpile. And then, yeah, we're, we're kind of good to go. So as far as groceries go, I don't watch it as annually as I used to, but for a time there, like Lisa and I, when Emma was first born, I was just getting ready to retire. I think we were like 50 bucks a week was like our limit. And we'd find ways to live on that healthily, like potatoes and yams and spinach and um, all those fresh produce would go on sale and we would just stock up and freeze it, right? And um, of course we eat meat, yeah, like um, in 2013, I bought a quarter cow. And so we split with a family who, who bought from a butcher a cow. And so we had a quarter cow in our, in our freezer and it was a lot cheaper than buying from the grocery store and it was organic and grass fed. So that was one way we did it for meat. I moved down to do it again, probably. Um, beef's pretty much like the main thing I eat. I'm not a big pork guy. I don't really like pork. It's kind of a dirty meat. Um, tastes okay, but not really a big fan. I ate a little bit of chicken, but there's not much nutrients in, in chicken. It's super lean. Uh, but beef is primarily what we eat as far as meat goes and fish. Like, I like a lot of salmon and, and things like that. You guys know, follow my stories. You know, I'm a big sushi guy, right? So um, we don't eat a ton of sushi from, from home these days, but um, especially since what happened with the, any, any, any Pacific fish is highly radioactive right now because of what happened in Japan, right? And um, I try to buy Atlantic if I can, just because it's a bit, bit healthier. But uh, yeah, hope that helped you, William. Yishi says, interest rates are really low right now. I'm looking for long-term buy and hold. Would you lock in at a five-year fixed rate at the moment or a five-year variable with a lower rate? So I think interest rates are as low as they're going to get. Now, it could get worse, but I, I feel like rates aren't going much lower. That said, the Fed has announced things like 0% until 2022. So there's no sentiment in the market that right now rates are going to go up. And so if the variable rates are considerably lower, than the fixed rates for the next two years, you're going to save a ton of interest. And so it's the probability is higher that the variable right now, if your differential is more than like 50 basis points, that the variable will outperform the fixed product long-term. Like if you average the rate over five years of what you're paying in variable, it will be lower than what you're paying in a fixed rate. If the differential is more than 50 basis points. So if it's a 2.5, you know, five year fixed and a, you know, 2% five year variable, 2% five-year variable is a better better buy. But if it's a 2.4% five-year variable and 
five, nine percent five-year fixed, probably go with the five-year fixed. Um, the numbers support that differential. So you know, what I, you know what I mean? It's about the difference between the two rates and each lender has different amounts of differences that they're offering. So it really does depend on the lender and the rate you're being offered. Adam says, hey Mike, I'm just in Guelph. Thanks for doing it every week and thanks. I get something out of it every single week. Adam, thank you so much. Uh, if there's someone out there who wants to volunteer um, to take these live streams, they're like an hour long, hour and a half long, and throw them onto a podcast form, I get a lot of requests from people who don't wanna watch the video, don't want the ads, don't wanna deal with like trying to watch YouTube while they drive or they bike or whatever, that they just have a podcast form of this live Q&A. Um, I wanna do that. So I don't wanna do the work to upload it and to download it. Like I guess you have to download it off YouTube and then upload that, which sounds like a bit of a pain, but for like the amount of time, it could be done. Um, so hit me up if anyone's interested in, in that. Mike, do you think life insurance has any value? Do you hit a number where it just doesn't make sense? Have a term policy for 200 a year and trying to decide if I should cancel it. So William, it really does depend. I think if you're lean fire, you probably don't need it. But if you're lux fire, as in you plan to be in a higher tax bracket for a longer period of time, the higher tax bracket justifies the warrant or warrants the need for universal life or whole life insurance because it's tax-free deferred investing. And so after your TFSA is maxed out and your RSP is maxed out, um, and you've maxed your tax efficient vehicles, it makes sense to look to the next tax efficient vehicle, which is uh, whole life insurance or universal life insurance. And so it can make sense to invest within a policy, especially if you can borrow the money back. Um, if the cost of the insurance and the cost of the management fees inside of the policy are less than the tax savings. So you need to be saving more in tax. So you are like in a 30% tax, but you make like 60 grand a year, 70 grand a year. It doesn't make sense probably to have insurance unless you're worried about dying and you need your family to be covered, in which case get term insurance. But the whole life piece, um, I've not had a need because again, if I died today, my wife's got enough, she's like 50 years living expenses set aside. So my death, while it would be impactful to her and you know, it would definitely limit our chance to become, you know, hundred millionaires or whatever, like, cause I, I'm the main earner. I earned the money, right? For the most part. Um, it would be a devastation, but she'd be fine. Like she got passive income in the six figures if I die. She doesn't need an insurance policy. Life would go on, monetarily speaking. So as a, someone who's in, in the financial independence retire early community, if you're already at fire, you don't really need insurance, period. You can self-insure. But there are tax advantages if you're in the lux fire spectrum where your income is still high because your passive income is say six figures or something. If you're on the lux side or luxury fire, then yeah, it can make some good sense. I'm actually looking into it because again, so much passive income. Do you think Airbnb makes a full-blown comeback? Uh, not in the, in the near term. I think it's gonna adapt and change, but not in the, in the way that it was. It's a shame. I think it's gonna take some time for, for wounds to heal, probably a year or two. Might be some deals though for the people buying Airbnb type properties, hopefully. GPA is 0.5. <laughs> That's troll. Uh, when I was in the eighth grade, I started my first business. I would buy used and broken PlayStation 2s for 10, 15 bucks and then resell them on eBay for 45 to 50. That's amazing, that's hustle. I used to do the same thing with iPads and uh, iPhones. I used to buy second generation iPads, first generation iPads that people would just be getting rid of because they got a new one. So they'd sell them for like 100 bucks. I'd clean them a little bit and like sell them with a case for like triple what I bought them for. Buy them for 100, sell them for 300 on Kijiji. And that was a little hustle I had in university going. I did a, you know, not a lot of it, but some of it to make money. And, I'm all about like, I've been doing tutoring and all kinds of things when I was in school to, to make money. 
I don't know who that person is, Storm Chaser. I'm not even sure I understand that question about this, this Goldman who served US military. Um, next question is, do you think it'd be smart to invest in stocks and index funds for the next six months to a year? I'm not looking to buy my second property until then. How to save, I'm actually a bit leery investing in stocks right now because we saw companies like Boeing trading at $96 a share, currently trading at like 200 and something dollars a share right now. Um, from the low point a month and a half ago. We saw bank stocks selling at like $35 a share, now at like $55 a share. So there's been almost a full recovery from what happened with COVID and the market is not fully recovered. We are significantly worse than we were in January, February. Like unemployment data is bad. GDP is bad. Companies are shut down. The economy is not good. Stimulus, federal stimulus and low interest rates are artificially propping up a lot of these companies. And so I think that, um, now is probably not a great time to invest in stocks. If like you're planning to exit in the fall, I think there might be a bit of a dead cap bounce right now going on and we might have a, a second low. I don't know, I'm just speculating. But if you're planning to hold long-term, it doesn't matter when you buy because 10 years from now will be better than it was now. So long-term, buy stocks. Short-term, probably not a good time to buy stocks. Unless you're buying, you're hand-picking stocks um, and you're cognizant of that. By the way, two months ago, I was like all for loading up on stocks. Uh, next question, just graduated. Should I focus on paying off my OSAP of 30K before investing? Um, probably not, because it's interest-free, especially if you're getting like, yeah, if you're able to get the interest-free uh, OSAP, then just keep it going, Ontario um, student loan uh, program. The trolls are out tonight, it's true. Austin, how you doing? Is it ethical to own stocks and be a landlord? Um, why would it not be ethical to own stocks and be a landlord? I, I think yes, very much so. We could go deep on that, but we're already 62 minutes in. I don't want a 20 minute tangent here about the ethics of investing and, and driving an economy forward. Um, I think if you provide, if you're investing in the local economy, you're providing jobs for people, right? And so nah, I'm not gonna get into it, but yes, I, I think it's ethical for sure. Um, it's unethical to pay your rent, to not pay your rent. That, that's unethical. Hey Mike, Juan here from Sarnia. I'm curious and would like to know your vision for your YouTube channel. Juan, that's a good question. I don't have a vision. Um, it's not been on my priority list of things I'm trying to do this year. So growing the channel has not been a priority. I have been doing the weekly streams because I want to stay consistent with you guys. I made a promise that I will go live every single Wednesday. And I've done that for almost two years now. So from a consistency perspective, continue to deliver value. I thought about setting up my camera as an alternate perspective and using tidbits like good questions you guys ask and good answers that I have, posting like a seven or eight minute video with a quick intro that I'll film uh, as an individual bite-sized video. So definitely have thought about doing that. Um, so yeah, I mean, I could do that. I'm planning to also build like a studio outside. And so when I invest in that studio, I'll have you know, more of an incentive to want to justify the cost of the studio. Um, and so I'll probably want to uh, do more videos. So stay tuned for that in the fall. But right now I've just been focused on buying some real estate and finishing up and tying up a lot of loose ends that I had with properties that I already had committed to. Like I bought a lot of properties last year that needed fixing up and stabilizing. And so I've been just dealing with a lot of that too. And uh, yeah. I've not made YouTube a focus. That's not to say that I won't gear it up again and go hard. I probably will. I've been coasting a lot since last year. I haven't done anything in 2020 as far as like released videos other than the weekly streams. 
And so I'd like to get a podcast going where we utilize this content. And I think it makes sense to utilize, you know, the camera equipment that I have and all that stuff. It's just sitting there depreciating. So the vision for the YouTube channel would be to get big enough that, um, yeah, I guess I don't really have a goal for it, but I guess we get big enough that I have a bigger impact on the world, right? And there's no target in mind, really. Uh, I'd once thought of like 100,000 subscribers as like the, the goal, and I guess I'm a quarter of the way there. And uh, that's kind of cool, I'm over, like I'm almost 25,000 subs. So I'm super thankful for that opportunity to, to help you guys and to continue to do that. Am I gonna make videos that are clickbaity or like, you know, just trashy content? No. Um, no, I like to just throw out sincere value. I've had the YouTube channel, believe it or not, cause more damage than good. Um, hey guys, I see you guys, don't worry. I'm coming. Okay, go ahead. I can like hide her from the camera. All right, guys, we're going to do the lightning standing round. My wife doesn't want her on camera, if at all possible. My daughter has to put all her stuff away in the, in the uh, book, uh, bookshelf there. This is why I need a studio. It's time. I can also stream. I have like an open couple bedrooms in the basement, but it's just so much of a pain to set up down there. Can you fire ethically? Um, yes. I, I guess that's like a socialist mindset. I don't, I don't think it's unethical to, I guess your, your argument would be that it's unethical to have more resources than someone else. But I think that it's unethical for someone to work harder than someone else and have the same. That would be unfair. Thank you, Emma. Wow, that's a nice picture you drew me. My daughter drew me a nice picture. All right, we close the doors or are we just gonna have a little fun in here? It's day 11, so. Okay, so you're telling me just to end the stream even though I'm midway through. Yep. Well, that's what it is, guys. The wife's always been there along the way to uh, rein me in, you know? I'm like, oh, let's buy another property. She's like, oh, maybe not. <laughs> um, okay, guys, I gotta, I'm gonna have to wrap this up. I'll go wireless and I'll walk. I'll go in here for a minute and have my daughter keep putting away her stuff. Right, I'll go in the bathroom. Nice and quiet. There's two layers of I gotta go through my whole bedroom, you go through my whole kitchen to get to uh, to get to here. Science, if you're watching the replay on this, I appreciate it. So uh, I guess this is invaluable information every Wednesday. D how to says thank you, appreciate that. Uh, can you fire ethically? Yes. I, I think that it's unethical for it's unfair more than anything else for someone to I wonder if I can set this tripod up here. I wish I had a chair in here. This is why I need a studio, guys. It's time. Um, next question. What are your thoughts on the Canadian economy? Uh, also, about online universities in London real estate, if less students are physically attending and less demand on student rentals. I think it's going to impact all the rentals, so I stand firm on my approach with that. I think that London student rentals are going to be affected negatively. Good. Hey Mike, do you know how HST works when you add a unit to a property? When you add a basement apartment, do you need to pay HST on the new supply? Does CR really track all this stuff? So Anthony, um, if it's residential real estate, it's HST exempt. So only commercial real estate has a, an HST component in it. So yeah, if it's commercial real estate, there's a component. Uh, I have heard though that if you had an HST number as a uh, real estate investor that you can get a portion of it back. I know you can deduct, you can deduct all the renovation um, money. So that's something, uh, even the HST, you can deduct that. So, but in residential, 
uh, the tenants don't pay any, um, like rent doesn't have HST on it, only in commercial, right? So because the revenue is, an HS, is HST exempt in residential real estate, um, you don't get to have HST to, you, like the deductions can't be claimed against the HST revenue because there is no HST revenue on residential real estate. I gotta go a lot faster here. My wife wants me to really end the stream. She would prefer if I did less uh, YouTube and more time with the family. Even the hour and 20 minutes that I give you guys a week is like, you know, I guess close to bedtime. She's like, oh, you know, gotta go deal with my daughter. So I don't think I'm gonna get through all these questions. There's a lot of good ones here. I'm gonna try and cherry pick. Um, I don't know who Skywater is. It says message retracted. So I don't know what. Um, did that question? Did that question? Do answer that question? Yeah, Trevor, I do want to get my website up and going again, and then put up some of those free tools for you guys to use. Um, so Trevor, I'll try to get that up for you. Bill, appreciate you stepping in. Appreciate you guys stepping in. When there's trolls in the comments, I don't see the comments. I appreciate you guys jumping in and defending me on that. That's appreciated. Um, next question. Hi Mike, it's a pleasure to have you in my life. I'm originally from Ethiopia, but living in Brampton. That's awesome. Thank you, appreciate that. Uh, if there are no deals on the market, what approach do you take? For example, do you wait for a deal and throw out low ball offers? Seems like all the duplexes are overpriced in my market and there's low inventory. Alex, yeah, I, I either make a deal or I wait for a deal to happen. I don't compromise my values ever. So I will never buy a property that doesn't meet metrics or that I can't make meet metrics just because there's no deals. I just wait on the sidelines. Just so happens that when I go digging for private deals, I tend to find uh, the best deals even in a good market. So um, just look harder or wait. Patience is a virtue, they say. I want to volunteer on your projects. Teddy says, is there room for it? Maybe reach out on Instagram. Um, it takes a lot of work for me to, to kind of go through um, the training process, right? And so it often adds more value than it helps. I guess, sorry, it adds more value for you guys, less value for me, like the whole mentorship thing. It's actually quicker if I just um, don't. Am I live? Can anyone hear me? Hello? I don't know. It says disconnected. Don't know, guys. Don't know what's going on here. I don't know if I'm going to be able to... to... Sorry, my house is a mess. I don't want to walk around right now. It's not a good time, but... Oh, okay. You can hear me now? Turn on some lights here. There's some lights. We'll just... Maybe we'll sit at the kitchen. Oh, my kitchen's a mess, guys. Sorry. This is not... Uh... I was not prepared for live stream here. I think I'm closer to the router here, so maybe it'll be... It'll be better. Uh, sorry, I didn't plan this out really, but yeah, I guess we'll do the cooking show. My wife's almost ready for my story time. She's doing hers first, so we gotta hurry, guys. Is this a place for reasonable discussion? Of course, of course. Am I gonna give you my opinion? Hell yeah, unfiltered. Hi, Mike, do you place each property under their own LLC? No, I don't. Um, it's too expensive, and I did a video on that a while ago about why I don't. Every 10 or 15, you should set up a new LLC just for like, protective purposes. But in the beginning, your first 10 or 20 properties can be held in your personal name. There's no reason to, to incorporate for most people unless you're in the max tax bracket. Uh, how much interest rate do you charge? Go to ratespy.com to find rates. Um, 
Sorry, my dongle's all screwed up here. Oh, I gotta fix it. It's got three legs, and one of the legs is unbalanced. So let's see if I can get, uh, whatever. Um, we put money away, no credit card. Jess says we have three kids, but because my spouse is doing their PhD at UWO, our research grants aren't recognized by the banks and lenders. Is there a way to get in the market? Um, interesting. I, you know, when I got my first mortgage at, at 19, about our first property, they counted my scholarship income and my bursary income as income. I also worked a job at the same time, so did my wife, but we had like maybe 50,000 together and they, we were able to squeeze out a mortgage. They took a chance on us and so, um, yeah. I, I mean, it's one of those things where you gotta find the right lender who's willing to work with what you have. Uh, there probably is a way to get into a deal. You just might have to go to an alternative lender and not like the big banks, Jess. But follow along on Instagram, we can have a chat on that or something. Zarine says, hi Mike, hello. Uh, do, 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 do. Uh, so we were, I was asking the question about IBC, infinite banking concept, utilizing a whole life dividend policy to build capital and borrow against it to buy rental properties. Yeah, I have heard of that. I'm actually working with private banking right now to do that. The same is true with, with, um, with stocks. You can borrow back 70% loan to value on a stock portfolio with most of the big private bankers. And so that's a cool concept you can do as well. Um, yeah, so definitely take advantage of that if you're in the top tax bracket, like I mentioned. So if you're not in the top tax brackets, it doesn't make sense. But if you are, then it can make good sense. Next question. Do, 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 do. Let's see if I can get through all these questions quicker. How do you manage your time and schedule when working full-time and renovating properties? How do you take time off to show the properties to subtrades and contractors? You squeeze it in. It's the only way. I'm almost done. Uh, 26, I got heart disease and still working as a truck driver in the Netherlands, still don't have the virus. Well, that's good. Good to not have the virus. Something to shut down the economy. Um, as of today, the NASDAQ crossed 10,000 level and the S&P I think is about the highs of 2020. Do you buy stocks this year? Uh, right now, I'm not feeling super bullish about it, but maybe in the future. Thanks for the Q&A. Any tips for negotiating interest rates? Um, just get a couple of lenders and play them against each other. That's literally the best thing you can do. Um, next question, can you please refinance in layman's terms language? I'm having a hard time understanding the value of a third in Burr method, or the third R you're saying, okay. So, sorry, go ahead. <laughs> um, so the third R is buy, renovate, rent out, refinance and repeat, right? So the third R would be the uh, refinance. You wanna pull the money out because money trapped in a property is only saving you the interest rate on your mortgage. So you're saving yourself 3% interest, which doesn't make any sense. Um, did you guys hear that? Did you hear it through the skylight? You just hear how, how hard the, the rain's coming down. Um, okay, next question. Would you do Mike Snowball not using student rental, but through regular rentals? Yeah, you can do it. You can do the Burr Snowball with any type of property. It doesn't have to be. A bunch of my properties weren't student rentals, actually, so it doesn't have to be student rental. Uh, oh, people can hear me. They're back. Good evening, sir. Uh, three to five, trying to care of myself. Do you recommend I go with heat steaming? Okay, so the bed bugs, just you got to get rid of all your furniture or heat treat it all, and you definitely got to get a steamer to, to deal with that. I've dealt with that on a couple of rental properties along the way and dealt with like pest control companies teaching me how to deal with that. Almost always, the most important thing is to 
get all the stuff out of the unit because they'll hide in every nook and cranny. And you can buy a steamer from like 250 bucks on Amazon. I have one that uh, when I buy used furniture, I steam the hell out of every nook and cranny to ensure that it's bed bug free. That's one of the ways you bring it in. Also going to people's houses who have it. Um, but yeah, you can, you can treat for it. The dryer is a great place to clean clothes and clean things like, like that. Put it in the dryer for 45 minutes, it's killed. The other thing is on a hot day, load up a truck, like a cube van, load it up on a hot day, leave it for 24 hours. If it can reach above 100 Fahrenheit for a consistent period of more than three hours, every, all the bed bugs in it die. So 120, sorry, my wife says. Thank you for the fact check on that. Um, so go rent a, like a cube van for like 40 bucks from, from U-Haul or, or from Home Depot and put all the, all the furniture in there, and you'd, on a hot summer day, you could be able to get rid of all the bed bugs. I mean, you still have to treat the unit too, but. It's hard not to attach emotion, 100%, it's true. There's a bit of emotion. Are government bonds worth it? No, I don't think so. Um, can you do a video on international buyers buying in Canada, fire junkie? Sure, I could. Are you getting a Tesla anytime soon? Leventhal, it's on the list of things, it's just not been a priority. Um, for right now. Your bathroom is hella good lighting. Thank you, Phil. Appreciate that. Um, yeah, I'm blessed. We, I, it's a mess. It's a hell of a mess right now, but kind of see our kitchen. Super thankful. Like when this is cleaned out, I'm super thankful. We, we renovated this. Like I, I did all this. So I'm, I'm proud of my, my handiwork here, guys. I don't see that. See my kitchen. But uh, anyway, I got to let you guys go. My wife, I was supposed to leave 15 minutes ago and She's super tolerant right now of me going long on the stream. So um, anyway, thank you all for watching so much. And uh, she's in the room like right over here. So uh, I got to go. When they walk by, you guys are going to see them again. She doesn't like my daughter to be on YouTube. So thank you all so much for watching. I'll see you next week. As always, the secret to unlocking wealth through you, three levers. Spend less, earn more, and maximize returns. Bye everyone. Have a good Wednesday and I'll see you next Wednesday. If you're watching the replay, jump in those damn comments and tell me thank you for spending my time doing this. It means a lot. If you just jump in there and say you watched it, I know that you watched it. And um, yeah, I'll see you on Instagram on the daily at Mike Rosart. Bye everyone.